0: tonight, please turn to Genesis chapter 43, Genesis 43, we only have um, two or three weeks left in Genesis, and so we've almost made our way all the way through. I hope we're learning in our study through this book that the heartbeat of Scripture is that the God who made the earth and everything in it and everything else is a God who is relentlessly committed to keeping His promises. This is how He reveals Himself to us time and time again, even when humanity was being cursed because of its rebellion. God will bring about His blessing in a cursed field, so to speak. He's a God of amazing grace. He's sovereign over heaven and earth, but not just over nations and kingdoms, but individuals, and this is our hope that He can keep His promise in a world that's dead set against him, right? And so we're going to cover three chapters tonight because I don't want to break up this scene. The center of this text is the speech of Joseph that comes near the end of it, where he repeats repeats three times that it was not his brothers that sent him to Egypt, it was God. That should change how we look or shape how we look at the whole story. Psalm 105, 16 through 23, echoes Joseph's profession here that God had sent him in order to preserve his people, that's what Israel took from the story of Joseph. That's what they needed. And indeed, God rules over everything in order to fulfill his covenant promises to his people that he might always be their provider. This is the story of Scripture. In his providence, God used Joseph's brother's evil deeds to send him to Egypt ahead of his family to preserve a remnant for Israel. But God's preservation of this remnant in Keeping his promise to Abraham through Joseph is only a prototype for the full and final fulfillment of it because one greater than Joseph is here. And in the one who is greater than Joseph, full and final salvation is purchased for all of Abraham's descendants so that now nothing stands between us and God. God governs everything to prove that to his little flock so let's pray one more time father I thank you for your word and for your promise and for the time that you've given us to look at them again tonight and so father open our hearts enable us to see and to hear and to believe what you've breathed into these passages and so father help me preach to that end and no other We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first 14 verses of 43, just to set up the scene before us, and then we'll we'll walk our way through the rest a piece at a time. Uh, Chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judas said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags And carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. He's really overthinking the value of pistachio nuts, but that's another story. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin and ask for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the family is facing the disaster of this famine. It, it's it's The grain they had gotten on their first trip is gone. Jacob and his family are on the brink of starvation. In the context of Genesis, when we read that, if, if they die, it's the end of God's promise in 17.2 that Abraham's descendants will be greatly multiplied. But Jacob knows there's grain in Egypt. Now his sons had already made one trip to Egypt, but you remember it hadn't been a good experience. They they didn't know the one in charge of distributing the grain um, was the once conceited little brother that they'd sold into slavery twenty two years, some twenty two years earlier. He accused them of being spies. He detained their brother Simeon unless and less than until they returned with their younger brother Benjamin, but he had Joseph had hid the money or had the money hidden in their sacks that they used to pay for the grain they took, making it look like they weren't just spies as he had accused them, but also were thieves. And so when Jacob hears all this recounted, he loses all hope and he abandons his son Simeon to his fate, if you remember it in, in chapter 42, not wanting to risk the life of Benjamin. So now he's lost Simeon too, he thinks. But now all the grain that they got is run out. The famine is severe in the land. So Jacob decides to send his sons to buy more, but he doesn't want Benjamin to go. Judah reminds him, well, we can't go back unless we have Benjamin. Jacob doesn't want to risk the loss of both of Rachel's sons, but if they don't go to buy more grain, they're going to die. If they do go, you find in verse 8, he's going to lose three generations of people, potentially. But finally, Judah guarantees Benjamin's return, but not like Reuben had, remember? Reuben said you can have... you can." Take the life of my sons. Judah says, "Lay the blame on me, if we don't come back with him." Jacob isn't fully convinced, but he has more faith in Judah apparently than he does in Reuben. So he decides to send them back to Egypt with gifts. Which think of that. Think of how desperate they are for food and for provision. And Jacob, Jacob is willing to part with all this as a gift just so he can have his sons back. Sends them back with double the money they paid before, so that they won't be arrested for theft. And then reluctantly, he finally allows Benjamin to go with him. And he prays in verse 14, El Shaddai, God Almighty, which evokes the covenant with Abraham, the promise of God for Jacob's family. Only he can save them now, right? Only he can change the predicament they're in and grant them favor. We read in verse 15, so the men took this present and they took double the money with him and Benjamin They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Boom. The long journey back to Egypt is covered in one verse. The author really wants to get us back to Egypt. Will Joseph imprison them again, or will he be merciful? What will happen to Benjamin? Will Jacob ever see him again? Joseph must have seen them at a distance in verse 16 because they don't bow down to him until later in verse 26. But if you can remember the story of Joseph... This scene of, of him seeing them coming makes us remember the scene 22 years ago in Dothan, when his brothers saw Joseph from a distance and conspired to kill him. Here Joseph sees them and hatches a plan of his own. Look in verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So the brothers think the invitation is a ruse to arrest them for allegedly stealing the grain. He's going to make slaves of them. Uh, None of them will return home. The family is going to die out. How can they overcome this conspiracy that Joseph, this man, has against them? Verse 19 So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, that's probably exactly what Joseph told the steward to say. Uh, We we, we know that Joseph was the one that put the money back into their sacks, but the steward reveals or says that God was working behind the scenes. That will become the foundation of this whole story. In verse 26, when Joseph returned home, they gave him the gifts. All eleven bowed face down to him. So in verses 27 and 28, both of Joseph's dreams are fulfilled. They bow down twice to him. Even his father is said here to be his servant. So it's all fulfilled. We pick it up in verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. This is Joseph's only full brother, In the family, the second son of his mother, Rachel, without even waiting for an answer, he blesses Benjamin. God be gracious to you, my son. Verse 30, then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. So he almost loses his composure, but he gets away, he weeps, then he washes his face, pulls himself together, heads back out to his brothers. The brothers apparently don't notice this. They absolutely notice What happens next? Look down at verse 33. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. How did this man know their birth order? And if he knew that, what did he know about them? What knowledge did he have about their family? And then in verse 34, when they're served their food, Benjamin, who is the youngest, is given five times what the rest of them are given. That would be very unusual In this time, in this culture, normally it would be the oldest if anybody got more. But what is is happening? Joseph is recreating his own predicament with his ten older brothers and Benjamin. Now, before these brothers had hated Joseph for Jacob's favoritism of him, are they still the same envious brothers they were before? Now will they hate Benjamin because of what this man in Egypt has done for him? But they passed the test. They drank and were merry with Joseph. Then in chapter 44, the test gets much more difficult. Look at the first two verses there. Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Early the next morning, they're sent back to Canaan, But they're barely out of the city when Joseph's steward catches up with them. We Pick it up in verse 4. They've gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. He accuses them of stealing Joseph's silver cup, a very special cup. I think it's very unlikely that Joseph actually practiced divination. Joseph feared God. That's plain. But he's playing up the ruse that they've angered an Egyptian lord. I think that's what he's going after here. They vehemently, of course, deny the accusations. It's not true. They know that. Verse 7, they said to him, Why does my lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. That's how confident they are in their innocence. They make this crazy offer. Like, if you find it among us, we'll all be your prisoners then. We'll all be your slaves. But in verse 10, the steward reduces the sentence, interestingly, if they're guilty. But he also, in so doing, makes the test much more serious. Only the thief will be the slave. The rest will go free. We know the cup is in Benjamin's sack. We know he'll be the slave, the youngest that Jacob just couldn't bear to lose, right? If we didn't know this story that we've heard all our lives, the tension here would be uh, just extremely high. We know where it is. Well, in verses 11 and 12, they want to prove their innocence. So one brother at a time, they open their sacks. They're all empty. So with each one, it's looking better and better and better. And then it comes to the youngest. Comes to Benjamin, the son they cannot lose, and we find in verse 13, or I'm sorry, they, they, when they get to Benjamin, it's clear that he's the one that's taken it, or that's where it is. And so, uh, in verse 13, we read this Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Joseph disappeared, it was only Jacob that tore his clothes. Do you remember that? It was only Jacob. Now they all do. Every brother Now they're brothers. Now they're family. When they get back to the house, they don't want to give up Benjamin. Look at verse 16. And Judas said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. That's an interesting line. They didn't do it. What's he talking about there? Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup Has been found. Judah says they'll all be his slaves. God knows we're guilty. Right? Well, Judah isn't talking about the silver cup. Judah is talking about the guilt he's been carrying for 22 years. For what they did to their younger brother, Joseph. God is punishing them. He's sure of it. They withheld mercy from Joseph. Now God withholds it from them. They deserve what is happening to them, even if they aren't guilty of this crime. Right? Imagine Judah... Going through all this, considering what had happened with Tamar. right? Just just continuing to, to go through these things to be made aware of God's mercy and God's justice. But they withheld mercy from Joseph. Now God withholds it from them. They deserve what's happening to them. He's saying, even if they're not guilty of this crime, because of their other crimes, they should be punished for this anyway. But Joseph, very shrewdly again, narrows the punishment down to his single brother. Look at verse 17. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Right? Imprison all of you, make all of you slaves. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Only Benjamin will be enslaved. Only the precious younger brother will be enslaved. You guys can go. So what is it's just like Dothan, where Judah proposed and the brothers agreed to sell Joseph as a slave, not kill him but sell him as a slave. Will they do it again? Well, they offer a son of Rachel when the stakes aren't 20 pieces of silver, but their very lives and the lives of their families. If they're the same men, then of course they would if the stakes are higher. And maybe, I mean, you could reason it out if you're one of the brothers. Aren't 10 sons better than one for Jacob? Right? If, if 10 of us come back rather than one of us, aren't all their families better off if at least they return home? What will they do? And at this moment... Judah pleads with everything he has, but not for himself. Not even so much for Benjamin. He pleads for Jacob's sake, for his father's sake. The longest speech in the book of Genesis happens right here. And it's a plea for mercy to one who's been sinned against by the one speaking. Let me read this to you. This is 18 through 34. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also for me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah Tells him four times that his father will die if he loses Benjamin. Now, think about what Judah is saying, what Judah realizes here. He loves his father so much that he's willing to sacrifice himself for a brother that is clearly loved more than he is by his father. Right? If we come back, my dad will die. If Benjamin is there, he'll live. Right? We're not going. Our appearance won't save my father's life. Only Benjamin's will, is what he's saying. Twenty-two years earlier, this man had engineered the plot that got Joseph taken. Now, he's ready to offer himself as a slave for the rest of his life so that Rachel's other son can go free. Joseph has heard enough. That's what did it. Notice that. They passed the test. Twice before he had wept in private, Now he weeps openly Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 45 Then Joseph could not control himself Before all those who stood by him He cried make everyone go out from me So no one stayed with him When Joseph made himself known To his brothers And he wept aloud So that the Egyptians heard it And the household of Pharaoh heard it And Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph Is my father still alive? Right? Is everything okay? Is what he's asking here? But his brothers can't even answer him. They're not rejoicing, right? They're, they're terrified. The Hebrew word here for dismayed is the same word you used in this culture, in Hebrew culture to describe the paralyzing fear one felt like in a war. They're dismayed, to say the least. Joseph repeats in verse four that he's their brother. They sold him to Egypt, but seeing how distressed and in anguish they are, he tells them in verse five. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. It sounds like a contradiction. You sold me. God sent me here. Pick it up in verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Listen to how adamant he is to reassure them that it's okay. God sent me here. It's okay. God sent me here. You sold me, but God sent me here. Five more years of famine would have wiped out Jacob's family completely. But our God, the God that knows your name and mine also, had sent Joseph ahead of them to keep alive many survivors for Israel. The providence of God caused all this to happen in order to save. God is always moving to save even in the evil deeds of men. And beloved, if even evil is his servant for our good, then what can separate us from his love? What can do it? Joseph reiterates it three times in these verses, that God sent him to Egypt, not them. You see what the promise does? It makes null and void what we have done, as though it didn't even happen. Baloney, it wasn't them. It was them. No, it wasn't. That's the way grace works. That's the way the promise works. That's how powerful it is. No, you didn't do that. It's washed away. It doesn't exist. That's how powerful it is. Here in the central part of the story, Joseph focuses on the sovereign control of God, that God sent him to keep alive the seed of Abraham. It was all for the promise. So what comes next? Well, Joseph starts all the invitations. In verses 9 through 13, he immediately invites his father and his family to come, go get him, come and settle in Egypt, or you'll be cared for and safe. Verse 14, then he fell upon his brothers, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Reconciliation has finally come. All is forgiven. All is forgiven. When Pharaoh hears that Joseph's brothers have come, he's thrilled for him. Pharaoh actually backs up Joseph's invitation with his own, adds to it in verses 17 and 18. Joseph gives them wagons. That will make the journey back much easier. Provisions, garments, special gifts for Benjamin and Jacob. Verse 24, then he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Well, the ancient crime will come to light, though. Dad's about to find out, right? All will be revealed. It could get a little tense, especially on the trip back. How are we going to? How are we going to tell this to dad? Right. How are we going to say this? And Joseph is saying, hey, everything is fine. Don't quarrel on the way. And here at last is the end of all the pain. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob revived. I think he had a heart attack here is the way it reads. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Jacob's heart stopped is really the rendering here. How could this be? Right? Again, we know the story. The people in it didn't know. Jacob, Jacob has thought for 22 years that his boy was dead. Could you imagine? And all this, he's the ruler of Egypt. How did he get to Egypt? Like, what happened here? Jacob is determined to make the journey to Egypt to see him before he dies. Which means the whole family will be saved from the famine after all. God's good providence used Joseph's brother's evil deeds as the means of sending Joseph ahead of his family into Egypt so that Israel would be preserved for this famine. And we have to step back and ask why? Right? Why evil? Like, couldn't you just have done it? Right? Why the famine? Why, why do this through evil? Well, God had promised to make of Abraham a great nation and to greatly multiply his descendants and it has not failed. Beloved, If if we could say this is what God is doing, he's trying to tell us it will not fail. I keep my promises. I will put everything in the way of them and then I'll remove them. After all this time and all this sin, because that's what it was, and jealousy, and grief, and suffering, and pain. The promise is still in the process of being fulfilled. God brings peace after 22 years of pain, which means, by the way, such a thing is not unheard of. Just remember that in your own life with the reconciliation that is yet to be made in our own lives, and our relationships, as we look back. 22 years isn't too long. Who knows what God will be pleased to do. But all all throughout the story of Joseph, we see Jesus so clearly. Any one of you could preach a sermon on Joseph and hit all the points of Jesus present in it. Right? It's it's so clear. As God sent Joseph into Egypt to save his family, we've walked through these before, God sent his precious son. His only begotten into the world to save all of his people, all of Abraham's children, those of faith, that is, as Paul comes to reveal to us. In John 3.16, Jesus saves from much more than famine. He saves people from their sins so that they receive eternal life. Just as his brothers had bowed before him, so will all people bow down before Jesus In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and as Joseph invited his family to settle in Egypt, our brother Jesus Christ invites his people to settle in his father's kingdom. John 14, 2 and 3, and in this kingdom, there will never be any famine. There will be no pain, there will be no suffering or sin or death at all. All things will be new. The apostle John sees a vision of a great multitude In Revelation 7, standing before God's throne and before the Lamb, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. What an image. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And when you read stories like this, you realize, He's going to do all that. That's going to happen, regardless of what I experience here. As evil increases in our world as it always will be doing without within our own hearts it feels like this glorious reunion with God and his kingdom is slipping away more and more all the time you just it it, it seems like over time you feel further from it rather than getting closer to it these are the times when we must remember the story of Joseph And we must remember what evil is to our God. Remember the power of his promise in the midst of evil, in the midst of sin, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, beloved, in the midst of your personal guilt. Remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. For with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He's still keeping his promise. Everything is going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Everything in this story is credited to the sovereignty of God. All of it, even the evil. That means He's overseeing His promise until it's accomplished. With such power and control that not even the worst evil, not even the death of the seed, can stop it. It got three days. Satan's best that the raging of the nations against God's anointed king, the best they could do is three days and nights. God's sovereign purpose overrules our intentions you hear life and salvation in such a thing. But Here's what I hope we walk away with tonight because most of us, like I said, we, we've heard the story a hundred times. It's not a bad thing. I don't mean to make it sound like it's, it's bad. It's just sometimes you get used to things. And so I, I, I want to pick up on the theme of reconciliation where we were, I guess, two weeks ago because we missed last Sunday night. And I just, I just want to go a little further with it to make it clear for our hearts. And and I, what, what may be like a, a sidebar here is that I hope you can see how what we were learning in Titus this morning about grace, how every, everything in the Bible just ties in together so neatly and perfectly because it's just one coherent story. Right? Reconciliation finally comes to Joseph and his brothers because, let's be honest, through a series of tests and steps, That are taken, Joseph is able to discover that his brothers are truly sorry. They're not the same men at all. He he had to know that. He had to see that. Once he does, therefore, reconciliation was possible between them. Right? What what Joseph did in light of what had happened to him, I I don't I don't want to take away from the beauty of it, the, the selflessness of it, the wonderfulness of it. It's beautiful that he's able to reconcile, even though it comes through this series of tests and steps, who can blame him? (laughs) I mean, who could blame him, all that he's been through? But beloved, remember this. Something greater than Joseph is here tonight. You remember this. Jesus Christ did not wait for you and I to prove anything anything before He died for us. Do you know that? In fact, that's the way God proves His love for us. By that fact, that He didn't wait for us to prove anything. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, eight. You know what that means? Jesus died for me while I was sinning. While I was in the very act. He was bleeding for me. The reconciliation of Joseph and his brothers is beautiful. The reunion of Jacob and Joseph is beautiful. But beloved... It has nothing on our reconciliation with God and that of the nations. It has nothing on the reunion we'll have with our Father. Beloved, with one who is greater than Joseph tonight, there is no test. There are no hoops to jump through. There's nothing to prove. Our older brother has done all of that. Here there is only forgiveness and salvation. With one who is greater than Joseph, nothing stands between us and God. Jesus' work is so complete and so sufficient that he removes even the need for me to prove it before I get it. If while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and God had him die like that to show us that he loved us, Do you really think that God will eventually abandon you because you are what he died for? That because you're a sinner, he's going to abandon you? He died for you when you were like that. That issue has already been addressed. Your sinfulness, my sinfulness has already been dealt with by his death. Like he didn't know that's what I was. No, he knew precisely that's what I was. He knew everything I've ever done, am doing, and will ever do wrong, and died for me as that, not the cleaned up version of me, the rotten version of me. If he died for you while you were sinning, do you really think he's going to turn his back on you for sinning, for struggling? Those things that you just can't get right. Right, the things that you've prayed to stop a million times. Do you think when it, when it, when it all comes out that, that I'm a sinner, that then he's going to say, well, I didn't do this for sinners. But yes, he did. While they were sinners, while they were guilty. That's so important of a thing. Like it, You don't live as a Christian for 40 years and eventually merit what happened for you. Jesus didn't die for what you would become. He died for what you were that necessitated the dying. Would He ever turn His back on you because you still end up being what you were when He died for you? That doesn't even make sense. No, nothing stands between us. Nothing. We have to grasp the extent we have to grasp the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of what Jesus did for us. Because our sins against God are so many and so grievous. For, for, the, for the volume of what is needed to accomplish reconciliation between us and God, no human being is capable of doing enough. No human being is capable of it. Have you, have, have you, ever, have you just ever thought about that? Think of the best people you know. The best people you've heard of or read about. or or, And there have been some great human beings. Many of us could probably say that the finest person I knew was in my own family. It was my dad or my mom or my brother or my sister. I mean, beloved, you understand? We're not putting them down. We're saying the best of us, that person could never merit their forgiveness. So what Jesus did, my goodness... And and we have to learn to see attempts at self-salvation through good works, not just as insufficient to accomplish our salvation, but as offensive to God, who saves by grace based on the blood and works of Christ alone. If God says the blood of Jesus is all He requires, and it satisfies His wrath, then every drop of my blood, sweat, and tears is an insult, beloved, if they're offered up as a means to meriting His forgiveness. That's why there are no tests for us. And if you say, well, doesn't it say that bear fruits in keeping with repentance? I I would not deny that. I would just caution you not to take the Bible out of context. Remember when Jesus is speaking to Israel under, He's doing so under the Old Covenant. Before he dies, we'll get to that. Just don't don't in your mind start running around for reasons not to believe this, is my point in saying that. God doesn't play any games to see if we're serious enough in our repentance. Because you know what bare fruits in keeping with repentance is? Do you know what that is? That's a law. That's a command. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do it? I mean, what, what would a fruit that is in keeping with repentance, what would what kind of fruit would that be? I bet we don't know. I bet only Jesus can help us. Jesus has done all of this for us. Jesus has taken care of carrying the weight. It's it, The bill's paid. The bill's paid. We want to pay something back. It's natural. I, we all are like that. But we, th- th- we think we can only have assurance that true reconciliation has been accomplished if we do something to prove that we mean it. And what I'm saying is that's not required. Be at peace. Right? I mean, what are we actually saying? I mean, certainly Jesus can't do all of it. Yes, he can. Yes, he can and he has. The greatness of Jesus over Joseph proves that he has. Joseph is great. Jesus is just greater. God counts our offenses as so serious that only Jesus can do the work of reconciliation. There's a lack of belief in how horrible sin is in the belief that we can do something to atone for it on our own. That's a smack against the holiness of God. That makes him a tribal deity that if you, you know, do enough sacrifices and say enough incantations, he'll be satisfied. That's not how God is satisfied. And God doesn't need satisfied because he's a tyrant who's grumpy. He's holy. That's just who he is. He doesn't do it cold. He does it with his son. And notice that his son. You see, God doesn't want our sons for our salvation. He doesn't want, he doesn't require that. He doesn't want our work. He doesn't want our money. He just wants Jesus. This is how God Make sure to keep the promise. He finally sends Jesus to secure it. He sent Joseph through the evil deeds of his brothers to save Abraham's seed. He sends Jesus through the evil deeds of all mankind to do the same, but to grant them eternal life, not just a home in Egypt. That's a beautiful picture. My goodness, if it was, it's much better than Egypt. It's much better than enough grain during a famine, beloved. In the one who is greater than Joseph, full and final salvation is purchased for all of Abraham's descendants, to the degree that nothing now stands between us and God. So, beloved, don't quarrel on the way. Don't fight. Don't stress. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There is nothing to explain when we get home. He delights to save you. He sings over you. Jesus rejoices before the Father in the very midst of us. Go get the best robes, the fattened calf. Go get a new ring and get new sandals. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're found. Nothing stands between us. Believer, you are his child. You are his child. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished. We can't even fathom it. But oh Lord, let us try. Let us not forget. Thank you for revealing this story to us, these details and facts. We thank you for it. May we believe you. May we believe your Son. We ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.